As always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and today I'm very honored to host on the podcast a special guest from the Marathon Initiative and author of the book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict, Mr. Elbridge Colby. Elbridge, thanks so much for coming on board the podcast. We appreciate it. Great to be with you, Garrison. Thanks. Now, of course, sir, your career is fairly well known. Obviously, the book is getting rave reviews right around the entire industry. But for those who might be a little new to the foreign affairs business or perhaps listening to the podcast for the first time. Would you mind giving a little bit of your background and some of your experience in the field? Sure. No, thanks. Thanks for your kind words. As you said, I'm, I'm a principal at the Marathon Initiative, small think tank in Washington, focused on preparing the nation for, for great power competition, developing strategies for that, and author of Strategy of Denial, American Defense in the Age of Great Power Conflict, which came out last fall in 2021. And before that, I've been in and out of think tanks for a while, but probably the more sort of notable thing is I was the servant at the Pentagon as the lead official for the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy and also worked in collaboration with colleagues on the National Security Strategy there as well. And uh, earlier in my career, worked on a number of government commissions and the Pentagon and intelligence community and other other areas, but kind of a focus on, on defense strategy, geopolitics, and those kinds of areas. Well, for those who aren't familiar, the 2018 National Defense Strategy was a landmark document that you were instrumental in producing, and obviously that's had a huge impact on American thinking and foreign policy towards China, so it's a high honor to have you on today. Now, when we originally were discussing hosting this interview, I thought that the primary topic on people's minds would obviously be China, which of course is still the focus of the book, and we'll get into that. But since then, Vladimir Putin has changed the world a little bit and changed Europe as well. Before we get too deep into discussions on that, can we take one quick step back and maybe you could orient the listeners to kind of a, a basic overview of your purpose in writing the strategy of denial and the basic argument you're proposing in the book, and then we'll start kind of applying it from there? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think basically the, the motivation of the book is a real concern that Americans, and actually I think the response of a lot of people in this in this crisis actually just reinforces my concern, is that we're acting kind of as if we're still you know, living in a world in the 1990s or 2000s where we're kind of the unipolar power, where we're so powerful that we could more or less on our own handle all the potential threats to our to our security basically simultaneously. And that's just not true anymore. I mean, and that's for a variety of reasons above all the, the rise of China. But in this kind of situation, you know, my view or I think reality is that we need to have think clearly about the resources we have available, you know, not the hard resources, but also willpower and these other things. Think about what our critical interests are and how to how to serve them. And then at a reasonable cost and risk, and then allocate it appropriately. And that's, in a sense, what I think of as a strategy. So to me, a strategy is not a cunning plan or kind of master Byzantine plan. It's really like a framework for thinking about decisions in a world in which we can't just like smother all of our problems. And so in that context, what I want to do is try to lay out a logical framework that people could engage with. Obviously, this is my sense of how things come out, but at, but at a minimum, I hope people find it useful as a, as a framework for, for thinking about our problems. And I, I know that's very valuable in the government about making decisions in these huge bureaucracies. And so that was part of it, but also to write it for the broader national audience who, you know, when we're talking about issues of war and peace, the American people obviously need to and should be involved. My basic argument is we need to get back to the basics of you know, what American foreign policy should be about. I don't think it's necessary for us to be the world's policeman or to spread freedom to every corner of the world. But 
what we do have an interest in is avoiding so other power in the international system being so strong that it could force its will on us and undermine our national life and our liberties and prosperity in particular. And if you kind of neck that down, the only place that that could reasonably happen is China and Asia. So Asia is now clearly the world's primary theater. It's going to be over 50% of global GDP. Europe, which has traditionally been the world's primary theater, is shrinking in size. In fact, in the next 20 years, it's going to shrink to about 10% of global GDP, it seems. And China is by far the most powerful other state in the international system. And of course, and not of course, but I look at things through what you might think of as kind of a conventionally realist, sort of classically realist point of view. So, you know, the thing to be reckoned upon is power because intentions change. And just because the Chinese are being nice one day, well, they might change their mind the next day or they might have a new leader the day after that. Is the have to prepare for that. You know, we have important interests in Europe, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But they're secondary to the ones in Asia, and Russia is less of a threat than China because it's one tenth the economic size. So it is a, a threat, and and they're aggressive. But that doesn't mean that the Chinese aren't aggressive. In point of fact, what we see is that the Chinese appear to be pursuing regional hegemony over Asia. You know, and they want to have a kind of a soft imperial kind of system around Asia, and that would allow them to agglomerate the power necessary to impose their will on American life. And we can already see this kind of thing. I mean, we can see in the response right now to the Russian sanctions how little, relatively little leverage the Russians have. Meantime, the Chinese have much, much more leverage over our life over Hollywood or the NBA or pick your example. And that would get worse, far worse if they dominate Asia. So that has to be our goal is denying that. Basically, the book is laying out how do we do that, and that's primarily through an anti-hegemonic coalition, not only in in Asia, but also in Europe, which is to say a coalition bound together by the shared goal of denying China regional dominance over Asia and, and in the case of Europe, Russia over Europe. The problem is, particularly against China, that's very, very difficult because China has the ability to sort of try to pick off members of that coalition and try to collapse it by undermining its credibility, and particularly the credibility of us who have to be what I think of as like the cornerstone balancer of this coalition in Asia, because only we are strong enough to convince countries in in the region that it's prudent for them to stand up to China. So this poses a real problem for us, and it also gives us a sense of what we need our military to do, because then the military problem, as I think it's now probably less of a point that needs emphasizing, is the prospect of major war is real. Countries will use their militaries, as the Russians have demonstrated, and as we demonstrated and repeatedly over the last couple of decades. And the Chinese are building a formidable military. What we need to be able to do is deny China's ability to subordinate members of our anti-hegemonic coalition, particularly those that are closely tied to us, China's ability to subordinate them and force their disaffiliation from that coalition. Because if China can do that to a couple members of this anti-hegemonic coalition, it may cause a run on the bank and essentially collapse that coalition before it ever gets going. And so that's what we do. That That is a high standard from a military point of view. So we need a military standard of denial, which basically means defeating an invasion of an ally. And the one, effectively, the ally that we need to prepare for in particular is Taiwan, because whether we like it or not, it is in our defense perimeter. It is militarily significant along the first island chain there and so forth. The problem is that we're behind the curve. And, and actually, our military position in the Western Pacific is deteriorating further. And so, and this is a point I laid out in, a, in an article in Time magazine today, is we need to maintain the prioritization on Asia while also, as a secondary interest, serving our interest in Europe. The good news is that there's a way to do that. Just because we can't do everything that we could have done in 1999, fortunately, we have a lot of allies. Now, our allies have been lagging. They haven't been doing a lot. 
But the solution to this problem of the vacuums that will be left in uh, by by less American military presence in Europe and also in the Middle East even more is to empower our allies and press them to step up. And fortunately, that does seem to be happening now. So that gives me confidence, actually, that this strategy will be workable. Now, we have to do it whatever happens. I mean, if we're asked to choose between Europe and Asia, we have to choose Asia. But I don't think we need to make that choice because I think our allies will be willing to step up and we can help them in ways that allow us to prioritize on Asia while protecting our interests in Europe. Well, and I really appreciate you taking the time to summarize the book because I do encourage listeners to actually pick up a copy of The Strategy of Denial because you're doing a wonderful job condensing the book, but it's it's highly (laughs) nuanced. It's very articulate. It really, I think one of the main appeals of the book, at least from my perspective, is it doesn't fall off the cliff on either end, so to speak. We, We have a very loud camp arguing for kind of a new isolationism in the U.S., on one side, and then we've had this history over the last 20 years of kind of an ultra hawk neocon approach to doing everything everywhere all the time. And your book kind of threads up the middle a much more reasonable conservative form of restraint. As you mentioned in your book, the U.S. has no interest in dictating to China, only in blocking it from regional hegemony. So it, it has sort of a, a restrained approach and a more practical approach to how to maintain America's freedom, economy, and political freedom as well within our own populace. But, you know, the focus of the book is clearly China. But so much of this, I think, can port readily as an idea to Europe, which you were already mentioning with our allies. I was listening to some of the, the podcast interviews that you gave, particularly in the fall, and I know at least one of the think tanks, one of the better known think tanks, I won't mention who it was, but they kind of challenged your book right out of the gates with, okay, you know, Bridge, this is all well and good, but what about the fact that China's number one strategy would be gray zone activity or hybrid warfare or cyber activity, you know? Yes, maybe they'll invade Taiwan one day, but isn't this kind of more hypothetical? You know, big countries don't tend to invade their neighbors in 2021, 2022. And then this last week, Russia invades Ukraine militarily. (laughs) And at least from my perspective, not that you were hoping for that in any way, but it just totally validated the entire approach of the book as a military defense argument. And so kind of starting off with that approach, what's your opinion on the reactions that have have kind of evolved over the last week where the world's changed from Germany going, you know, very pacifist, very unengaged to becoming, oh, we're going to spend 2% of GDP. You know, Switzerland, we're going to join sanctions. Finland, we want into NATO potentially. Do you feel like people are starting to wake up to the idea of allies joining and defending Europe so that America can focus on the longer term pacing threat of China? Well, thanks. And I, I, you know, I, the way you characterize the book is exactly how I, you know, that's kind of my approach, which is, you know, on the one, it, the ascendancy in the last generation has been the sort of the super neocons. We're going to end tyranny in the world. It's take men been disastrous, but it would also be disastrous to, to think that we can just leave the world alone and that everything will be fine and dandy for us. I mean, that, there's nothing realistic about that, you know, so, but the key is to be, as you said, practical and strategic and think about the costs and the benefits in a kind of almost like a business-like fashion rather than a, you know, an emotional or sort of very ideological approach that's kind of dominated. And then frankly, there's a lot of right now sort of this virtue signaling approach when we're dealing with issues of war and peace and, and weapons and stuff. We need to be really clear headed in my, in my view. And I mean, I'm biased, Garrison, but I, th- I think you're right. I mean, look, the Russians <laughs> built up a pretty big conventional military, and at the end of the day, they weren't getting what they wanted, and they decided that they were going to put it to use. Now, in some in some sense, we're seeing the limitations of that, although we'll see how this plays out in the coming days. But it also shows that if you don't have a military deterrent, you're much more vulnerable, you know, and that's what they thought against the Ukrainians. And, and 
know, I think the Germans, I mean, this has done more in the last couple of days to convince Germany of the reality and the necessity for military deterrence, military force of deterrence, than anything the Americans have done in the last 20 or 25 years. And I also think it's showing that this, you know, my kind of strategy, which says, you know, unlike the sort of, you know, the neoconservative sort of America has to be the dominant actor every single part of the world. We're not maximally asserting ourselves, then we're, you know, cowards or we're going to go down to feet. I think that's wrong. I think we're seeing that our allies, Poland, Germany, as well as others that are partners like Finland and Sweden are stepping up. Now, it doesn't, you know, we, we need to maintain a position in Europe, but it should be a much more supporting role where we're allow you know, in a kind of a convening and sort of value-add approach so that we can focus on the primary theater, which is Asia, which only we can do. But I think we're seeing that that that, that is a feasible approach. I mean, if this had happened, and I mean, I actually think that the, the sort of super hawk kind of neocon position would be more vindicated if the Ukrainians had fallen apart and you immediately saw the Germans and the French trying to cut a deal. Because yes. that would suggest, okay, um, yeah, they're never going to coalesce. They're never going to step up. If the Americans aren't there, it's all hopeless. But that's not what's happening. Right. You know? Right. Um, and actually, the sense in Europe, I think, is that the United States is behind the curve, from what I can tell right now. Yeah, well, certainly so, in terms of in terms of leadership activity, I, I think we've been seeing a lot more of Olaf Scholz and, and you know, various European leaders than, than the president, which might be a good thing if you take uh, if you take the perspective of Europe, you know, picking up some of the slack. But um, there's definitely yeah, a balancing it's interesting. act. Yeah. On that point, it's been thinking about Ed- Edward Lutvak has a you know, interesting point. It's kind of this paradoxical logic of strategy that, I mean, I think this is a failure of the administration. I mean, the fact that the war has happened and so forth is a, clearly they were trying to avoid this and they were expected to be measured on that. But I mean, sure. the fact that they, that, that this has happened is now an opportunity, a tragic opportunity for a much different architecture and approach, which I think we should, we should be pursuing and, and exploiting. Absolutely. Exploiting is not the right word. Leveraging. You know, right, right. Adapting, you know, yeah. responding to the situation yeah. in the best possible, you know, turn of events right. for our interests and for the interests of our allies. You know, kind of digging into a little bit of the meat potatoes on some of this. You mentioned, again, the book focuses on China, but again, the, the strategy of denial, I think, really has a lot of parallels into Europe. You do mention Beijing. When you're speaking of Beijing's best strategy, particularly as it comes to potentially one day subordinating and reunifying Taiwan by force, you say that one of their best options would be a fait accompli, or where the attacker uses brute force to seize part or all of its victims' territory, but tailors its use of force to convince the victim and the victim's allies and partners that trying to reverse its gains would be some combination of unavailing, too costly and risky, and unnecessary, end quote. Do you think that's what Vladimir Putin was attempting to do with Ukraine? And if so, what do you think went wrong with that strategy and where do you think it goes from here? And, and I know it's a bit of a long question, but how might that inform China's perspective on a potential takeover of Taiwan or, or does it, you know, just say anything you want there? Well, I think I'm not sure that the fait accompli maps, I mean, it's, you know, any war in some sense is a, is a fait accompli in the sense that, you know, you want to create new facts on the ground and then have them be recognized. But I think Putin here, what, what's different is that in the Taiwan scenario or in a Russian invasion of NATO, the problem that the aggressor, Russia or China, is facing is the potential for large-scale U.S. and potentially other allied intervention. And so the fait accompli is particularly attractive because it kind of gets in under the – it gets in and changes the facts on the ground in a material way before 
you know, the superpower, the U.S. is able to meaningfully respond. Here, I think this is more of a case of just straight overwhelming. It seems like they were trying to just completely subordinate Ukraine. And, you know, the, the, the fait accompli probably was more the political fait accompli of presenting the West and Europe with a new reality, which was like, Ukraine's gone. What are you going to do about it? But I think the military operation, I actually distinguish in a, a part in the book where I talk about if you have two countries and the smaller one doesn't have protection, then you just go for this sort of overwhelming approach rationally, which appears to be what the Russians at least were, were, were trying were trying for. And then, you know, the analogy there would be like, you know, the American attack on Mexico in 1846, for instance, right? Like we weren't worried about, we just went and invaded the capital and, you know, forced them to give up territory. Right. Right. That makes sense. That makes total sense. Now, in terms of I see a lot on social media comparing the two potential scenarios, the actual invasion of Ukraine by Russia and what signals it might show to China in terms of a potential operation against Taiwan. And I've seen arguments that say they have no relevance on each other. I've seen arguments that say, you know, this is the exact case scenario China would watch to see how something might play down for for their operations. Where's your stance in terms of any potential alignment between, you know, lessons for authoritarian powers watching Russia and this action in Ukraine? And how much do you think it influences Chinese thinking? Well, it's hard to know. I think there are a number, a bunch of different factors. The one thing I would say, the, the most important thing probably that will go into Beijing's calculus is the impact this war will have on the American ability to focus on defense of Taiwan. Because... You know, at the end of the day, as as I think Putin has shown here, if they want something enough and they have the military to try, the big factor is going to be an assessment of how successful a military operation will be. And, you know, the, so the biggest factor is not probably something, anything that's happening in Ukraine, but what the American response will be. Mm-hmm. Because if we get tied down in Europe, and this is, you know, I wrote this piece in Time Magazine, I mean, to say, look, trying to kind of thread this needle, we need to support Ukraine and help our European allies, but our priority has absolutely got to be China even more, not like just the same, like more. And so I think that's going to be, that's going to be the top thing. I think, you know, I have to think that, that this situation must be giving the Chinese a bit of pause about, you know, if you're the political leadership, central military commission or something in Beijing and, and your, your generals are telling you are super confident, maybe you're going to wonder a little bit, but you know, I mean, China's an economy 10 times the size of of Russia. It's true that it's never been it's never been tested in high end conflict, but I mean the United States military has not really been engaging in super high end conflict, you know, at least really since maybe two thousand three a little bit, but really it's probably since the Iraq War in nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety one, at least the potential for it. So I'm not sure. I, I think it's too soon to tell what, what the Chinese will, will take away from it. I do think they're probably impressed by the international response, you know, particularly in Europe, although you know, China's China's got a lot more leverage over the rest of the world than Russia does. Although, you know, the fact that the Germans are closing Nord Stream 2 and moving that direction is suggestive. But I think we'll have to see how things how things play out. But again, I think the central factor is what it means for the American military position in the Western Pacific. Now, let's talk about that a little bit, too, because as you did mention your Time Magazine article, which I also recommend our listeners reading, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes, you mentioned Asia still remaining the world's decisive theater, and that that should be the priority of where American you know, military and defense strategy is focused. In practical military terms, what does that look like in terms of threading that needle of supporting our allies, supporting this kind of nascent, sudden reawakening of European defense, 
but at the same time saying, you know, we're going to preserve assets for the Western Pacific. What, what are some examples of what that might look like? It means that we have to be very clear in our heads that in terms of what the forces are needed to defeat a Chinese attack on Taiwan, those need to be withheld, even given what's going on in Europe, or even, or even worse. So that, like, we don't have a military that is sized and shaped to fight China and Russia on even roughly concurrent timelines. So there is scarcity. This, you know, people often say, well, you know, we can have the army fight in Europe and then the Navy and the Air Force or whatever will fight in, in the Pacific. Yes, I've heard that one floating around. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not. I mean, the army, it fight, we fight, the military fights as a joint force, right? Yeah. I mean, U.S., my understanding is U.S. ground forces have not been under direct air attack since the Korean War. Wow. Of course, they're going to have the Air Force. They're going to have the Air Force that's going to su- suppress air defense. We got rid of a lot of artillery. Now we've started building it back, but like the, air, the army relies on the Air Force to suppress enemy artillery, you know, rocket launchers, logistics, forward movement of, of forces. The Navy brings the army across, brings supplies across from the United States, defends against attacks on the American homeland from Russian submarines. Our space forces would also be, you know, sort of scarce munitions, especially like precision guided munitions like JASM and LRASM, these kinds of things. They're scarce. So those are the things that we need to now. What we were trying to do in a sense in the, in the national defense strategy of 2018 was try to mitigate this problem by upping the capacity you know, for the focus on great power war, but that hasn't happened as much as one would hope. And so, you know, what, what, what I'm trying to do with the, the time piece, and I think, you know, basically based on the, on the, the same logic as the book is to say, okay, we got to, we got to retain for the Pacific, but so what can we do consistent with that, with Europe, but, you know, with the main line of effort being bolstering the Europeans to, shoulder the, the the major burden and so that our posture in europe would move over time towards you know the nuclear deterrent globally fungible capabilities you know potentially cyber and space capabilities and some limited other forms of military capacity especially as the chinese you know are continuing to ramp up defense spending now if we heavily invest in munitions and, and we build 100 b-21s and we dramatically build up our shipyard shipbuilding industry and build more submarines but even that that's going to take years to bear fruit. But so, you know, over time, we should try to mitigate this dilemma. But in the, in the coming years, we're going to need to be clear headed about it. And the reality is that the Chinese, I mean, look, frankly, we're seeing this right now. I mean, I don't want to overstate the point because we don't know how this is going to evolve. But I think we are we're seeing that Russia is menacing, but we're also seeing the, the limits of Russian power. Right. I mean, they are having trouble against the Ukrainians who are alone and whose military is not one of the best in Europe. Would you so say that some of that, that would you say that some of that potentially is an impact of some of what you discussed in the book, which is when there's a mismatch between large and small scale military powers, but the large scale one is only willing to fight a limited war because they don't want total destruction of what they're trying to acquire? Or do you think this is a more fundamental flaw in Russian military? I don't know. That that I think I mean, I'm not an expert on the Russian military, but I you know, my sense is there's some exaggeration of the flaws of the Russian military and how much difficulty they're facing. I mean, we're still at this point, it's the, the 28th. We're still less than a week into this conflict. Remember, it took us three weeks, the Americans to get three weeks to Baghdad in 2003. So we shouldn't get cocky in a sense. But, you know, there do seem to be some significant problems. I mean, I assume the Russians would have wanted this to go better. Sure. But I also think you're right that they they seem to have started out with a with a more, you know, kind of lightning decapitation approach and, and hope to, to kind of 
cut off the head and then just replace it with a pliant new government. But but that didn't work out. Now they're now they're going the sort of the hard way, the old fashioned way, if you will. Right. Right. Now, in terms of some of the potential parallels, when you see the resistance that Ukraine's putting up and the, the level of commitment that they're showing down to arming individual citizens and territorial defense forces, launching a foreign legion, if you reflect that based on your time in government with discussions with you know various leaders from Taiwan, do you think the same level of commitment exists currently in, inside of Taiwan? Or do you think that this might serve as a catalyst, as a wake-up call? Or Well, I hope it does. I mean, I think, I hope that people on Taiwan see what's possible. That said, I think my fear is that this would not be as viable an approach against the PLA in the context of Taiwan. I think it could help, but I don't think we can rely on this sort of people fighter or freedom fighter kind of, because, you know, Ukraine is a huge country and the Russian forces are much sort of more limited in, in their capacity you know, than the Chinese military backed by an economy that's 10 times the size of Russia, right? Right, right. So there, there are sort of limits on what they can do. I mean, the Chinese are churning out the biggest Navy and so forth in the world day by day. And, you know, Taiwan is a lot smaller than Ukraine. So I, my concern would be that if the Chinese were able to seize the island and establish their hold on it, they could bring in people's armed police and just kind of flood the zone. Right in a way that the Russians, I, I, you know, just given their their state, their economic state and base these days, are, are finding it much more on a, on a scale that's much larger in the case of Ukraine. Right. Do you, just as kind of a side note and a personal curiosity, do you feel that Taiwan being an island would make it easier or harder for China to suppress? Because there is the distance factor, but there's also the susceptibility to blockade and air cover. Exactly. Do, do, yeah, I mean, as, as do you feel that's more of a strength that, or more of a liability for Taiwan? Well, it's, this is again, this is kind of Edward Ludwig point, the kind of two-sided or paradoxical, you know, it makes it more vulnerable, but it also makes it, I mean, it's harder for them to get to the island, but like, it's also harder for us to get to the island because we would have to, I mean, we don't have forces there where those, any forces would have to be supplied. You know, if the Chinese could get over and force and supply it, I think it would be very difficult for us to, to fight that. So I think, you know, it's also very close to, to China, which, which you know, so it's not like, you know, invading Honshu or something like that, where, you know, America has sort of direct access from the east or the Alaska and so forth. So, you know, the biggest thing we have going for us in the context of Taiwan are obviously the 100 miles of water and also, you know, just the difficulty of amphibious operations and Chinese government's incentives to make sure they don't fail. So those are, those are what we have going for us in particular. You know, your book focuses a lot on the, the the critical nature of, like you said, America focused on the Asiatic theater, focused on the China threat, and encouraging allies in Europe to step up to do more. Kind of two-part question here. First, we've seen a lot of developments, like we touched on earlier, regarding, you know, Germany's sudden interest in defense spending, maybe the beginnings of the end of, you know, an overtly neutral stance for Switzerland when it comes to sanctions, Finland and Sweden starting to lean more towards NATO, certainly in public opinion. Number one, do you think that that's going to be a permanent shift or is this sort of a, a temporary, you know, sort of bandwagoning, joining the club of democracies as they stand up to Putin moment? And secondly, how much do you think that might translate into discussions in the Asia theater? Because we also have the picture of India, you know, who's not an overt American ally, but certainly becoming a more important partner with time, given the quad and so on. They're abstaining on resolution after resolution at the UN against Russia over this conflict because of their ties in the area. Do you think that that sort of 
okay, we need to do more. We need to step up. We need to make sure that we, we are ready to support America so they don't leave the room. <laughs> do you think that attitude will translate well to Asia or do you think it's going to take a crisis like it did for Europe to, to precipitate that attitude? Well, look, I think, I mean, honestly, I think this, what's happening kind of is consistent with what my approach kind of heuristic would expect, which is the countries that are responding are the countries that feel threatened. Right. And the ones that feel they have bigger threats like India and, you know, probably to some extent Japan, which didn't go along with, I think, all of the G7 sanctions are pulling back a little bit because their biggest priority is China. And I think hopefully this will be lasting. And I think we should really encourage the, the, the European effort to be lasting. But I mean, as, as Chancellor Schultz basically said, he said, like, the reason they're doing this is because there's a threat right. you know, nearby. So that's what we want to we need to work with. And I don't think we should insist with our Asian allies the same degree, exactly the same policies or so forth on this issue that we do from the Europeans. Because they have bigger fish to fry for them, that, which is China, you know. And, you know, similarly, someone was asking about Israel, you know. Well, I mean, Israel's, a, in addition to being a very close ally, is like a critical player in the contest vis-a-vis Iran. You know, we don't, we shouldn't expect all of our allies to be immediately in lockstep. I think we should not want our allies to vote, like, to go against us or to undermine our policy. But I don't think we should be asking Japan to take exactly the same position as, like, Germany. Right. You're, you're comfortable promoting a differentiated response based on region. Right. Based on region, basically, with like the immediacy of the threat, the level of capacity, you know, like if Pakistan invades India tomorrow, I wouldn't expect, you know, the Netherlands or something to take exactly the same position as uh, pick your country. I mean, Japan or, or, or right. Australia or something that's right in the same region is similar. Pakistan's not a great example, but you got, I think you get the yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense completely. Now, in terms of the Biden administration's performance thus far, not only on the Russian threat, but also in terms of this pacing challenge, if you will, against China, what what letter grade would you give them and what major areas of improvement, you know, potentially pulling from the book or, or something new that you feel like, okay, this is this needs to be the top two or three things that need to get fixed quickly uh, in terms of achieving this strategy of denial with China? while also not abandoning the European theater in the face of threat from Russia. And we'll kind of wrap it up there. Yeah, not to be sort of snarky, but I think the best thing that can be said about the Biden administration's performance thus far on the international stage is that their lack of success is causing situations that are getting our allies to be really worried and do more and are potentially causing our opponents like Russia to reach beyond what they sensibly should, which may be the case in Ukraine. So, I mean... Is that is that grand strategy or is that a happy accident in your opinion? <laughs> well, I think it's a tragic accident. Yeah, more yeah. than a tra- it's a tra- it's, it's sort of a failure. I mean, Lutfak makes this point about how the Obama administration's weak policy in the South China Sea led to ca- the beginnings of counterbalancing in yes. or balancing in 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 Asia, and I think we're seeing this here. I mean, Vladimir Putin has done more in like four days to change Germany than the last twenty years, as we said earlier. You know, the Biden administration was trying to deter. I don't think. They would even want to be seen as having deliberately precipitated this war to change European no, burden no, sharing. Like no. that, right? The purpose of our policy should be to avoid that outcome, and of that's course. one of the reasons that I've been taking a hard, hard line on burden sharing for a long time. It's like, and I'm saying the Japanese actually, in that piece, it's coming out I think tomorrow is 
you know, don't let it get to the point where your neighbor gets invaded before you. Right, before you, know? you take it serious, so, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that's probably the best thing. And I mean, I, I'm not a booster of massive increases in the defense budget. I'd rather that we try to work within the existing program. But if we get to the point where we need to make, in order to do the things that are necessary, like defend Taiwan and modernize our nuclear deterrent and continue our counterterrorism operations, then we should pay whatever that costs because uh, I think it's critical. But, you know, the Biden administration is continuing to have a big, in fact, it's increased to the force presence in Europe. I, I haven't seen major reductions in our force presence in the Middle East. And they haven't made huge changes within the sort of, you know, muscle, the bone structure of the Department of Defense. And then they're cutting the budget. They cut the budget last year. Mm. Now, in real, it's, it's like one of two parts of the federal government not to get increased in defense spending. So my Unfortunately, I think that my, my candid sense of the Biden administration is sort of like speak loudly but carry a small stick, right? In the <laughs> sense of like, like you know, Biden kind of sounds like John F. Kennedy, but at least John F. you know bear any burden will stand up. You know, he said we're going to fight every inch of NATO territory, and we're going to take on China, you know, and we're going to reserve the military option on Iran, and then he's cutting the defense budget. Well, you know, at least JFK was increasing the defense budget, right? You know, right. that would make more sense. I mean, if if Joe Biden were saying all of that. President Biden, and he were also doubling the defense budget, you know, I wouldn't necessarily think it was a good idea, but it would at least be consistent. But that's sort of where where we are. But whatever happens on that, Garrison, I think the key thing is we just, we can't underestimate what China is. I mean, China's literally 10 times the size of the, of the Russian economy. Mm-hmm. So, like, what are people thinking that we're going to sort of, they're equivalent in, in the scale of the threat? Right. Um, And I mean, there's a lot of. Well, it's very hard to imagine this level of swift sanctions being applied to the Chinese economy, at least in my opinion. And I'm not as informed, obviously, but just I have a hard time picturing all of Europe cutting, you know, the major Chinese banks and, you know, saying we're not going to let flights from China land in Europe. And, you know, it just seems like a lot harder line to draw. No, and that's dangerous because if China thinks that, then it's more likely to act. Right. Albert Colby, thank you so much for, for joining the New Diplomatist podcast and, and coming on to discuss your fantastic book. Again, I encourage every listener to, to buy one, to read it. Much more there to be dissected and discussed, but uh, definitely want to be respectful of your time. I really appreciate you coming on board today. It's been great. Thanks, Garrison. Really a pleasure. And yeah, look forward to being in touch.